the gospel in seven words. That's it. That's our theme all the way through Holy Week. Remember back a couple weeks that to be a Christian is to be a confessor. And Peter reminds us that to be a confessor is to always be prepared. To always be prepared as a Christian to make a defense for anyone who asks us to give a reason for the hope that we have in us, yet with gentleness and respect. So if you were with a classmate or teammate or co-worker or family or friend and the Holy Spirit gave you a sacred moment in a conversation to share the essence of your Christian faith, what would you say? What would you say in one clear, concise gospel statement? Are you, am I prepared? We talked about the gospel confession should have two parts. They don't have to be in this respective order, though they could be. But first, the gospel confession should have a statement of our human need. Something to the lines of our sinfulness, our brokenness, the reason why everything in this world is messed up. Second, though, and most important, they should also have a very clear statement of the good news of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ is indeed the answer to every pressing need and malady. He is our hope now and for eternity. So for the past two weekends, for the text on 2 Corinthians 5, our seven-word gospel confession from that was, God in Jesus Christ reconciled us back. Human need, but good news in Christ. Last week, Pastor Nolan, he led us in Jesus' words in Luke chapter 4. He had this summary that Jesus frees us from all of our prisons. Today we're going to look at another prominent theme in both testaments of the Bible. It is a theme that at one point or another has already touched us. And it is the words death and life. We turn to the fourth gospel John actually orients his whole gospel around seven different signs. And each of these seven signs in his gospel reveals who Jesus Christ is. And each of these signs on their own gives enough evidence to us, the reader, the hearer, to believe in Jesus Christ as the Messiah, the Son of God, and to follow Him as our Lord. We're going to look at the climactic sign this morning. Number seven. What Jesus is going to do in John chapter 11. What we are about to read is a true story. You will notice that uh, the alarm was supposed to go off 
an hour later, right? <laughs> but that time change. Uh, you will notice uh, that we have a real place today. Bethany. And this real place is a real distance from Jerusalem, literally 1.72 miles to the east on the slopes of the Mount of Olives. You will notice real names of real people in our text today. Three siblings, Mary, Martha, and their brother Lazarus. And there are also a host of first-hand eyewitnesses whose lives are going to be forever changed by this seventh sign of Jesus Christ. Before our text, John tells us that the brother of the three, Lazarus, had a sickness. And this sickness was so severe that it led to his death. And that's where our text picks up in verse 17. Jesus came to Bethany. And by the time he got there, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany, as we just saw, was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews who were in Jerusalem had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother's loss. In the Jewish way... Grief had three stages. The first three days after someone's death was a time of very heavy weeping. For the rest of the week, it was followed by a time of deep mourning. And then after that week, the next of the whole 30 days grief contained lighter grieving. But the fact that so many Jews made the near two-mile walk from Jerusalem to Bethany to sit with these sisters in their grief shows that these siblings must have had some prominence and some influence in their community. Our text continues. When Martha hears that Jesus is in Bethany, Martha goes to meet him. But Mary remains seated in their house. Martha says to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Notice in 21, her words are filled with grief, obviously. But packaged with verse 22. It is a grief that is laced with faith. That yes, in her bereavement, she still has a confidence in Jesus. That yes, if Jesus would have been in Bethany while Lazarus was still sick, maybe things would have turned out different. Maybe Jesus would have healed their brother like he did so many other people in his earthly ministry. But even so, she knows that Jesus has a special relationship with God and that God listens to Jesus. And I'm sure 
she had at least some working knowledge of those previous six signs from John 2 to John 10. How would Jesus respond to this grieving daughter of his? Jesus looks at Martha and he says, your brother will rise again. Martha then responds to Jesus, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. When we say the creeds, apostles and Nicene, both of those creeds end with something like, I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. That is not just a New Testament theology. When Martha said these words, I know my brother will rise again at the resurrection on the last day, did Martha have a New Testament? No. It wasn't written yet. <laughs> she only had the Old Testament. But what was her theology from the Old Testament? There's going to be a resurrection of the dead on the last day so that all believers in God, first and second testaments to today, both carry this profound hope of the resurrection of our dead. But when Jesus said, your brother will rise again, of course, part of that meant on the last day when he comes back. But Jesus had a whole lot more in mind than what she interpreted it to say. The next words of Jesus are some of his most profound words of declaration in this fourth gospel. Look at what Jesus says next. He looks at Martha and he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall surely never die. Notice that Jesus doesn't just say he will give resurrection and eternal life. Jesus says that he is the very one himself who is the resurrection and the life. Jesus is the very embodiment of resurrection life. And it can only be found in close relationship with him. I also love the open invitation. Did you catch it? Jesus says, whoever believes in me. And in 26, everyone who lives and believes in me. Meaning it doesn't matter to Jesus and his kingdom who you are or what you've done as a person. 
or where you have been or how long you have been there. Whoever believes in me has resurrection life. That includes each of us. Look at the last words to Martha. In the most direct and personal way, Jesus looks at her. You can picture this eye to eye. Now asking Martha, do you believe this? Do you believe this? Jesus' words aren't a lecture to be argued or debated. Jesus' words are truth to be received in faith. You can't believe for your spouse. You can't believe for your children or grandchildren. And so Jesus' question is there to each one of us personally, individually, not just to Martha. How do you respond to his words? Do you, right now, today, believe this? Sometimes in the Bible, when we think of someone like Peter, we kind of throw him under the bus a little bit. We remember how he took his eyes off Jesus and sank in the water and had to be rescued. Or we think of Peter as the one who denied that he even knew Jesus three times before that rooster crowed. Sometimes I think we can give the same kind of bad rap to Martha. That sometimes when we recall Martha, our minds default to the story of her in Luke 10, where Jesus is in their house, and Martha is frantic with all these preparations that need to be done to serve him, while her sister Mary is just sitting on the floor listening to Jesus teach. And Martha, as good siblings would, finally says to Jesus, Jesus, tell my sister to get up and help around the house. And Jesus says, no, <laughs> she's actually chosen what is better, and that's not going to be taken from her. Sometimes I think when her minds hear Martha, they default there. When what we have next, when Jesus looks at her and says, do you believe this? is one of the most clear confessions of who Jesus is in the entire Bible. Martha said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into this world. Here is a woman of a very profound faith. Her faith is not general. Her faith is not vague. But Martha's faith is very deep and filled with substance 
and conviction. Her faith statement affirms, one, that Jesus really is the one. The one the world has been waiting for since Genesis chapter 3. The one who came to save us. And number two, her words affirm that Jesus is God the Son, now in human flesh, to save his people. The story ends, our text ends. But what happens next? <laughs> no one saw coming but Jesus. Jesus then asked to go see where Lazarus is buried. And so the Jews who are there with the sisters all grieving lead Jesus to his grave. And then Jesus gives a very strange command. He tells them to roll the stone away. And who do you think objects first? Martha. <laughs> I love my brother, but Jesus, can't you imagine his stench? He has been dead for four days. Lord, I don't think that's a good idea. He thought he smelled when he was alive. <laughs> but because the command came from Jesus... They moved the stone away. And we're told that Jesus looked up to heaven and started to pray to his Father. And then he ended the prayer with a command. Lazarus, come out. And immediately, <laughs> this corpse that had been lifeless for four days, all bandaged up, heard the voice of him who is the resurrection and the life, and he came out alive. John tells us that many of the Jews who were there to comfort them that day saw this sign of Jesus, and they believed in him. This gospel today is filled with anticipation even for us here in the 21st century. One, this account anticipates Jesus' own resurrection from the dead. Remember, he is the resurrection and the life. And John is the only of the four gospels who actually says Jesus raised himself from the dead. He is God. But it also anticipates what? Our resurrection from the dead. I haven't been across either of the ponds, east or west. I haven't been over the Atlantic. I have never been over the Pacific. But I read that in Rome, Underneath the city of Rome, there are over a hundred miles of tunnel that Christian grave diggers went down and chiseled out of the rock. And beginning in about 100 A.D., John was probably still alive at that time, 
beginning about 100 A.D., as many as 150,000 Christians would be buried in those underground tombs that we call catacombs. 15% of those Christians were probably martyred violently for their faith in Jesus Christ. In those catacombs, there are about 10,000 tombs. And of the 10,000 tombs, many of them have some inscriptions from stories in the Bible that gave the Christians hope as they went to their graves. You can find Noah and his ark, Abraham and his sacrifice of Isaac, Daniel with two lions peacefully at his feet, three Hebrews coming out of a burning furnace untouched, and more than 50 inscriptions are what you're about to see. What is it? It's Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. These Christians, some of them martyred violently, took the same hope and what we just went through with them to their graves, that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And that one day when He comes back, He is going to speak their names. He is going to speak your names. He is going to speak my name. And it doesn't matter if our body is buried in a grave or lost at sea or scattered as ashes somewhere on this planet. When our lifeless remains and cremains hear the voice of the one who is the resurrection and the life, we too are going to come walking out. This is our gospel hope. The challenge. How do we put a gospel this profound in just seven words? Here's my first stab. Though we die, unless Jesus comes back first, though we die, Jesus gives resurrection life. And even our remains will obey his voice to come out. Amen.